Amen. Adam ruins everything. I'm not referring to that fatal day in the Garden of Eden when our first father uh, sinned and ate fruit from a tree and plunged the entire universe into chaos and sin and destruction. I'm referring to a TV show on True TV where host Adam Conover is on a hilarious and informative quest to reveal the hidden truths about everything you know and love. In Adam Ruins Everything, Adam takes a familiar topic and ruins it by showing you how it, it really isn't what you think. Uh, one of the first episodes I watched was an episode called Adam Ruins Security. And he started with a takedown of everybody's favorite airport security checkers, the TSA. He, uh, he reported this. Apparently, there's very little evidence that the TSA has ever stopped a terrorist or found a real bomb. When Homeland Security tested them, the TSA failed to find mock weapons and explosives 95% of the time. And in that episode, he introduced me to a concept that previously I was unfamiliar with called security theater. A security theater is any sort of system that's more interested in looking safe than being safe. The inconvenient truth is we live in a world where much of what we think keeps us safe and secure is really only security theater. So for example, go to the grocery store and you get a bottle of medicine from the pharmacist or whatever. And it's got a little tamper-proof cap, right? And this is supposed to keep someone from being able to tamper with your medicine and hurt you. Do we really think that someone who desires to do that is going to be deterred by a tiny little piece of plastic on the seal. Or when you go to the restaurant and you pay for your food and you give them your credit card and they come back with a credit card receipt for you to sign. We always feel, you know, a little bit assured. They're taking things seriously here. They're asking for my signature. Do you know what they do with that signature after you sign it? They certainly don't check it against the original. It's security theater. It's, it's designed to make you feel secure, feel safe, without actually making you be safe. Or what about the host of changes we've endured in our society to protect us from the spread of COVID-19? I'll be gentle, I promise. Last year, the, the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., publicly admitted that requiring temperature checks for guests into the building did not offer any increased health benefits. They heard from scientists and doctors, and they said, this actually doesn't help you at all. They're largely unreliable. You're not really getting good scans. It's not helping. There's no physical safety improvement by checking temperatures. And yet, after releasing that report, the Kennedy Center announced that we are going to still continue requiring temperature checks because they do offer a psychological benefit to those that are entering into the building. In other words, it helps them feel safe even if they aren't actually safe. Now, you didn't come here this morning 
to talk about the TSA or credit card slips or COVID-19. Hopefully you came here today because you wanted to hear the word of Christ. And the word of Christ, the passage in front of us this morning, I want to introduce you to a concept that we could call righteousness theater. Righteousness theater is an approach to religious devotion that is more concerned with looking righteous than being righteous. Righteousness theater is an approach to religious devotion that cares more about looking righteous than being righteous. And our text this morning, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us three examples of what I'm calling righteousness theater. So if you're not already there, go in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. If you are our guest here this morning, we're so grateful that you're here. Just to let you know what we normally do here at PBC is we take a book of the Bible and we just study it together, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and that's what we're doing in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We are halfway right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the sermon that Jesus is preaching to his disciples about what it means to live righteously as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, Jesus says, you're going to follow me. You're going to live righteously. He began chapter 5 showing us a little bit of what that looks like. But now, as we shift to chapter 6, he wants to awaken us to a danger. A danger that, if we're honest, is present in every single soul in this room. The danger is that you and I would care more about appearing righteous before others than actually being righteous before God. So with God's help from our text this morning, I want to show you three keys to avoiding righteousness theater. Three keys. Number one, pay attention to your own heart. Pay attention to your own heart. Look with me at verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That word beware literally means to pay close attention to something. So Jesus is saying, pay close attention. Beware. What are we paying close attention to, Jesus? He says, He's talking about practicing your righteousness before other people. Now, here's a question I think we need to ask, especially if you've been with us for the past few months walking through this sermon together. Is Jesus against the public display of righteousness? Is Jesus against you living your righteousness out loud in public in front of other people? Is he saying, don't do that? Is that what he's after? I want to suggest to you that's not what Jesus means on the basis of what he says in the context. So if you go back a little bit in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, same sermon, verse 14 through 16. Look at the text with me. Uh, You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may, what? See your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Isn't it interesting that Jesus here in Matthew 5 refers to your public righteousness as a light? Now, except for the example of maybe something like the bat signal, lights don't really exist to be seen. They exist to help you see something else, right? That's the purpose of a light. And so too, with your public display of righteousness, it is intended not to draw the attention to you, but so that they might see what? Your Father in heaven and give glory to Him. So Jesus here is not telling us to abandon all public display of righteousness. He's he's warning us not to publicly display our righteousness so that it will be seen. Look again at verse 1. Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Key phrase. In order to be seen by them. It is right and good, dear Christian, for your righteousness to be visible to the world around you. It is wrong for your righteousness to be visible to the world around you if your motivation is everyone seeing it. In other words, Jesus is not concerned here in Matthew 6 about the public display of righteousness, but the motives of your heart. Why are you publicly displaying your righteousness? That's why in our outline this morning, the very first point, first key, is to pay careful attention to your own what? Heart. Your heart, who you are on the inside, your heart, not the the vessel that's pumping blood through your body, but who you are on the inside, what the Bible calls your heart, is kind of the steering wheel of your whole person. It's your motivation. It's what drives you. And so Jesus here is saying, as you live out your righteousness, as your light shines, be careful, pay attention, beware, don't be driven, motivated by other people seeing you. Be motivated by something else. Now, in, in, a, in a minute, we'll discuss three examples of righteousness theater that Jesus talks about in our text. But let's just examine a few of the ways that we're prone to this today. Let me just ask you some questions, and I want you to examine yourself as you hear these. Do you, Christian, care more about quality time reading your Bible or being seen having quality time reading your Bible? In other words, there's a trend amongst especially my generation and younger to make sure that not only do we read our Bible, but we have a very nice, fancy-looking Instagram photo of our our Bible and our hot cup of coffee, you know, and, and doing my quiet time this morning. Not necessarily wrong to do that, but where is your motivation? Are you more interested in spending time with Jesus or being seen spending time? with Jesus. Do you, in a gathering like this, we sing songs of praise to God, do you raise your hand during singing in order to be seen as spiritual? 
Or are you one of those who will never do that in order to not be seen like one of those guys? Will you pray or read Scripture publicly here while you're unwilling to do it privately at home? Do you volunteer in order to be seen? Do you prefer the types of ministries where people see you and recognize you? You know, I want to be a teacher. I want to be on the stage. I want to be an elder or a deacon. Do you do it in order to be seen? Maybe one way to examine your own heart there, brother, sister, might be simply to ask yourself, are you willing to do the types of ministry that only God sees? Are you willing to do that? Do you act one way when Christians are around and another way when they're not? Let me just encourage you, ask yourself this week in your fellowship groups, talk about this this week. How are you personally, you, prone to righteousness theater? Where are you more te- most tempted to be concerned more about looking righteous than being righteous? Now, one more comment before we move on. The, the key here is to pay attention to your own heart. To your own heart. Some of you right now might be tempted to think about the person sitting near you. I hope he's listening. I'm pretty sure that he was raising his hand just so other people saw. Now, listen, you don't know their heart, but you have a little bit of insight into your own When we talk about the motivations behind why we do what we do, you cannot see another person's motivations. Jesus can. So Jesus can say the hypocrites are doing all these things in order to be seen. He knows. He sees the heart. You don't. So your job, Christian, is not to look over at the heart of your neighbor, but to look into your own and examine it. And ask yourself, where am I tempted to care more about being seen as righteous than actually being righteous? Number two, if we're going to avoid righteousness theater, we must pursue the reward that satisfies. We must pursue the reward that satisfies. Direct your attention again to verse 1. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Uh, That word for in our translations, often is, when we see it in the Bible, it's often giving us a, a purpose or a reason for a particular statement. So Jesus, when he says, don't practice righteousness to be seen, if you were to ask Jesus and say, well, why not, Jesus? His answer is not going to be because I said so. A parent, sometimes that might be the answer your kids need, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. He actually has a reason. And he says, here's the reason, the main reason, Christian, listen, the main reason why you should not practice righteousness in order to be seen is because your heavenly Father will not reward it. Notice as well, Jesus is not saying, track with me, Jesus is not saying that there is no reward for righteousness theater. Three times in verses 2, 
verses 5 and verses 16. Jesus says, those who perform righteousness for the sake of being seen will receive a reward. What's their reward? The applause of men. The recognition of other people. The praise of humanity. The hypocrites who give, who pray, who fast for the applause of men receive their reward. But Jesus' point is, that's the only reward they'll ever receive. In this instance, the New Living Translation is very helpful. It says, they have received all the reward they will ever get. That's all you get is that brief momentary applause from people who notice you. That's what Jesus is saying. I want to take a moment here just for a second and remind us that sin is rewarding. It is. Um, I don't know about you, but I spent uh, several summers as a teenager going to youth camps where I was told that, uh, you know, sin is, it's always going to lead to something horrible and it's never fun and real fun is, is following Jesus. And, and yes, that's true in the long term. Yes, that's true. But we're not really helping our young people if we don't admit that, yeah, sometimes sin feels good. Sometimes sin does bring a reward. Your body is not lying to you when you're tempted to give in to sin because there is short-term pleasure, but it does not last. That's why the Scripture says in Hebrews that, that Moses chose to suffer alongside the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He looks at his scenario, his circumstances. He notices sin. This is going to lead to pleasure, but it's not going to last. I'd rather suffer now and, and, and be in glory and pleasure forever than have a little pleasure now and suffer forever. Sin sometimes is rewarding. And one particular way that sin is rewarding is when other people applaud you for being righteous. Jesus here is warning us, especially in this church, about a type of pleasurable sin that all of us are tempted to succumb to. I remember years ago, the year was, I believe it was 2000, when my youth pastor recognized me for being righteous. I was with a group of teenagers on a mission trip to the United Kingdom. It was our first day of sightseeing in London, and we were all tired after an overnight flight uh, into Heathrow, and we kept complaining about how we wanted to go to the hotel and sleep rather than do our sightseeing that morning. And so we're complaining, complaining, complaining. Pastor Paul did what every good youth pastor should do in that moment, and he rebuked the youth group. So you guys are in the middle of London. There's Big Ben, and you're complaining about how tired you are and all this stuff. And, and I must have received it well. Maybe I didn't fight back or complain again uh, because he took me aside a little bit later that day, and he said, Hobson, I just want to encourage you. Uh, I see so much humility in you. 
I don't know that I had ever been prouder than in that moment. It's like, I'm pretty good. <laughs> I'm the humble one in the group. This is great, right? That moment is burned into my memory 22 years later. Why? Because being praised for looking righteous feels really good. You are lying to yourself if you act like this is not a temptation for you, Christian. Being praised for looking righteous feels good. But here's the danger. Jesus says, that's all the reward you get. And Jesus wants to give you more. Notice the heart of Christ here. This is surprising for some of us because we think, well, I shouldn't really want a reward. But Jesus doesn't rebuke us for pursuing a reward. He wants you to pursue a reward that actually lasts, that actually matters. The thing about the applause of men is it's never enough, right? Man, even if you get, you get some sort of viral post on social media and 100,000 people love it, it's over in a, a day, got to do it again. It never satisfies. Jesus says, I've got something for you that will satisfy the hunger of your soul, and it's bigger than this. Live for the reward that satisfies. In verses 3, 6, and 18, Jesus says, if you give, pray, and fast rightly, you will be rewarded. He actually ends with the same phrase, same sentence in each of those verses. He says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Here, I think, is the key to real righteousness. Not by avoiding or ignoring the desire for reward, but by focusing on the right sort of reward, the reward that satisfies the pleasure of your Father who is in heaven. I I think C.S. Lewis gets it exactly right. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, he famously wrote, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward And the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. And we could add the applause of men. We're half-hearted creatures, he says, pursuing these things when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I wonder, Christian, if you find yourself far too easily pleased with the fleeting applause of men so that you don't really care to receive the pleasure of Almighty God. Lewis goes on in his essay to talk about different kinds of rewards. And, and let me just, uh, I think briefly, let's talk about different types of rewards. Because again, there might be something in your heart that says, I'm not supposed to want a reward. I should just want to do it. Well, Lewis says there's different types of rewards. I'm going to call them, uh, we could call one corrupting rewards and the other consummating rewards. 
A corrupting reward has no natural connection to the thing that's done to gain the reward. So as a result, over time, a corrupting reward will corrupt the, per- the one who pursues it, turning him into a mercenary. All you care about is the reward. But a consummating reward is naturally connected to the thing that's done to gain the reward. So let me illustrate this. Uh, think about professional sports. Most athletes start with a, a genuine love for the game. Most of the time, they just love the game. They love basketball, they love football, whatever. And that's why they play. But over time, something happens. What happens? They begin to exchange the reward of playing the game for the reward of fame or money. And it corrupts the sport. It corrupts them. That's, that's a corrupting reward. It's not naturally connected to playing the game. A consummating reward is the athlete who loves playing the game, and his reward for playing the game well is he gets to stay on the field. So he keeps working hard not to get more money, not to get more popularity, but so he can keep playing. That's a consummating reward. Or consider an example of marriage. You know, most of us, I would hope, would would find it disgusting and inappropriate for a woman to marry a man because she wants his money, right? Uh, That's a corrupting reward. She's, She's marrying this person. She's uniting her life to this man for something outside of him that she can receive from him. But a consummating reward, marriage itself is the reward for the, for the woman that marries her fiancé. Why? Because she wants to spend time with him. And as she does that, she gets him. So think about your relationship with God. Christian, if you're in here and you're a follower of Jesus, the hypocrite is giving and praying and fasting but not in order to draw near to God. He's doing all three things in order to be praised by others. That's a corrupting reward. That's all the reward he'll ever get. But Christian, what Jesus invites you to is to give so that you might draw near to God. To pray so that you might draw near to God. To fast so that you might draw near to God. And you know what reward you get when that is the motivation of your heart and those acts of worship? You get God. You get more of Him. You draw nearer to Him. So here's the question I want you to ask yourself this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, what are you aiming at? What type of reward are you seeking Are you practicing your righteousness to earn treasures on earth like the evaporating applause of other people? Are you practicing your righteousness because you're aiming at the pleasure of heaven? Because you really love God and you want to draw near to Him. If we desire to be righteous and not merely look righteous, we must pursue the reward That satisfies. Finally, number three, third key, we must practice righteousness rightly. We must practice righteousness rightly. I I love Jesus for many reasons, and I love his teaching because he is so 
immensely practical. Jesus is not interested in mere academic theories or philosophical arguments. Jesus cares about the street-level application of truth to your life. Jesus cares about what you're going to do with this on Monday morning or Tuesday night. So he graciously gives us three examples of what I'm calling righteousness theater, and he shows us how to practice our righteousness rightly. First example is in verse 2. Jesus says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, scholars debate whether these hypocrites are really actually bringing a trumpet and blowing a trumpet. Everybody, listen to me. Watch me. I'm going to give some money and put it in the offering plate. Everybody pay attention. I'm going to do something really important. We don't know if they're literally blowing a trumpet or, or they're just in some other way drawing attention to themselves. The point is their, their heart is more concerned with being seen as giving than actually being giving. Second example begins in verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Again, these hypocrites are interested in are not interested in loving God through prayer, but being seen as people who pray. The final example is in verse 16, where Jesus says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Here we've got an image of these hypocrites that are deliberately making themselves look miserable. Ladies, this is the opposite of what you do every Sunday morning. They're deliberately, I'm going to make myself look miserable so that when you see me, you say, man, you look rough today. What's wrong? And you say, let me tell you, I'm fasting for God. I'm doing something holy. They're doing it in order to be seen by other people. From these three examples of righteousness theater, I want you to notice three lessons on how to practice your righteousness rightly. Number one, practicing righteousness is expected. Practicing righteousness is expected. Notice the text. Jesus says, not if you give, when you give. Not if you pray, when you pray. Not if you fast, When you fast. Jesus doesn't even take the time to command us to give or pray or fast in this text. He just expects that that's what we would do. These are the things that Christians do. It's expected. So let me ask you, brother, sister, do you give? Do you give? In our Discover class, um, our class that's the, the first step towards membership here at Pocosin Baptist Church, 
uh, we share a few practical principles about giving. I think it might be helpful for you to hear them this morning. Uh, one of them is that you ought to give to your local church first. This principle comes from Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. It says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So since your local church is your primary source of teaching, or it should be, it should be the primary recipient of your giving. Uh, let me just say, I'm not saying this because we're, you know, in some sort of financial crisis as a church. Even throughout the pandemic, um, throughout inflation, by God's grace, God's people have been faithful to give, and Pocosin Baptist Church is doing very well financially by God's grace. This is not a, a pastor pleading with you, you better give or we're going to turn the lights off. This is, I hope, Jesus through his word reminding you that you, if you're a follower of Jesus, are called to be a giver. You're called to be a giver. So that's the question. Do you give? Another principle we share in this class is that you should give regularly and deliberately. You should give regularly and deliberately. This principle comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2. Paul instructs the church in Corinth to give something every Sunday when they gather for worship. A giving to the church shouldn't be something that we only do spontaneously and sporadically. Uh, there's a lot of ways you can do this. Maybe uh, you do it on a recurring gift or, or you make it a point every time you're paid or you make it a point once a month to give. But, but don't, don't allow giving to be something that happens when you think about it. Let it be something that is intentional in your heart and mind and life. You should give sacrificially and cheerfully. Give sacrificially because Jesus is given himself sacrificially to you. What did Jesus withhold from you, Christian? Nothing. So if you belong to him, we give because we have received. And we give cheerfully, not begrudgingly, not in anger, not grumbling as we give, but give cheerfully because we really believe that God loves a cheerful giver. He cares about your heart. So again... Giving is expected. If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, how can you grow as a giver? If you're in this room, by the way, and you're not a Christian, please don't mishear me. Our intent, our intent is not for you to give us something this morning. In fact, we want to give something to you, or rather, someone to you. Our intention is not to receive your money, but to invite you to receive something better than all the money in the world to receive Christ himself who has given himself for all who repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Second um, question on this point, do you pray? Do you pray? Again, Jesus says, when you pray. The expectation is that Christians will pray. We're not going to spend a lot of time on here this morning because uh, you may have noticed as we read the passage, we skipped over verses 7 to 15. Uh, that's because uh, we're going to be zooming in on those verses over the next few weeks. We just wanted to get the scope of this section of Scripture. So we're going to be talking a lot about prayer over the next few weeks. So let me just give you one point of practical application. 
Do your best as the Lord allows you to be present as we teach from God's Word about prayer over the next few weeks. If you want to grow in your prayer life, Christian, hear from Jesus. There's never been anybody with a better prayer life than Jesus. And Jesus, I don't think this shocks us the way it should. Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is telling us how we ought to pray. The God of the universe who has a perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit is taking time to instruct, gently instruct you in how to talk to him. And we get the incredible joy as God's people of gathering for the next few weeks to dive in. Why would you not want to make that a priority if you're able? A second application here might be to prioritize the times we've set aside on Sunday evenings, the first Sunday night of the month, to pray, to come here and pray. Do you pray, Christian? Praying is expected. Do you fast? I know this is not a popular topic, especially in Baptist circles, but Jesus expects that his disciples will eventually fast. Now again, we're going to talk about fasting a little bit more in depth in, uh, after we finish walking through the Lord's Prayer together. Uh, so let me just encourage you, if, this, if fasting isn't even on your radar, Christian, don't be discouraged. Okay, I don't want you to leave here thinking, oh my goodness, there's 18 different things I'm doing horribly. What a failure. What am I going to do? And I got to fast tomorrow. What am I going to do? Jesus loves you, and he intends to slowly chisel away all those rough edges, to slowly, surgically, patiently, gently, kindly, firmly remove all the cancer of sin out of your life until the day you see him face to face. He's not going to do it all in one instant. So just be faithful to gather with God's people and let God speak to you through his word. So we'll save fasting for later. Whether we're talking about giving, or prayer, or fasting, or Bible intake, or church attendance, or any other spiritual discipline that's clearly taught in the scriptures, these things are expected of us, Christian. Are they reflected in your life? Second lesson about practicing our righteousness rightly. It's expected. Number two, it can be corrupted. With all three examples, giving, praying, fasting, Jesus warns us not to practice your righteousness like the hypocrites. Do you remember their problem? They're, they're giving, they're praying, they're fasting in order to be seen praised by other people. This is a good reminder that every single holy and righteous thing that anybody can do can be corrupted. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you've gotten really frustrated with the church because you've seen this sort of hypocritical worship. Listen to me. Do not swear off water because it sometimes flows through rusty pipes. 
The goodness of the gospel is good, even if sometimes God's people corrupts it, corrupt it. Jesus here anticipates what some of you have seen in churches your entire life. Hypocritical worship. It's a real thing, and it can be corrupted. If you're in this room and you're, not, and you're not a Christian, I would plead with you again to reconsider the person of Jesus. Who is he? And is he good? And is he true? And is there any better hope than him? And if you're in this room and you are a Christian, let me plead with you. Don't think just because you're doing fill in the blank that you're good. Because that righteous act, that Bible reading, that prayer time, that giving, whatever it is, that can be corrupted by your own sinful desires and motivations. It's not enough merely to do the good thing. Jesus calls us to do it from a heart that treasures God. That's hard. But that's what he calls us to. Now, I wonder if you're in this room and you kind of find yourself in this place where you know what you're supposed to do, but you don't feel it. You know, I know I'm supposed to give, I know I'm supposed to be present, I know I'm supposed to be involved in the church, I know I'm supposed to serve, whatever the thing is, I know I'm supposed to do it, but I don't feel it. What do I do in that moment? I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be like these guys. Let me plead with you, please listen to me carefully, Christian. The solution is not to stop doing the righteous act until the desires catch up. The solution is to be faithful and pray and ask God to change your heart. Let me just give you one example of this in my life. Just last night. We have a practice as a family uh, once a week to gather around the dinner table, and we call it encouragement night. And the purpose is that every single person at the table is going to verbally encourage every single other person at the table. And the reason we do that is because, I don't know if you've caught this in your own life, but most of us are pretty quick to be discouraging. We're pretty easy at figuring out the things we don't like, the bad things, right? That's pretty easy. That's natural. We have to work at it to encourage. We want to raise our kids up to be encouragers and to learn how to receive encouragement. So we do this every single week as a family, and we're sitting there around the table encouraging one another, and my son, Ezekiel, is sitting beside me. And um, for those of you that don't know, our family brought Zeke into our home through adoption a little bit over a year ago. I've been his dad for a little bit over a year and I'm sitting beside him, and he's hugging me and kissing to me, kissing on my cheek, and he's like singing a little bit in my ear and just loving on me and grabbing my face. And all of a sudden, my heart felt like it was going to explode because, and I'm almost ashamed to admit this, but for the first time since I've been his dad, I felt like his dad. Now, praise God. He was my son the moment I signed a little piece of paper in a weird alley in La Mesa, Colombia. <laughs> but for whatever reason, my sin, I'm sure mostly, my heart did not always feel like what was actually true was true. 
What do you do with that? With the right thing to do as a father, to withhold affection, to withhold love, to withhold care for my son until my feelings catch up so I'm not being a hypocrite? Or is the right thing to do to love him well and pray, God, change my heart. Please help me. Christian, that's what he invites you to do. Do not wait until the, the feelings are electric and it's there. You do it. And he said, Jesus, work in me. And sometimes in a crazy, absurd, totally random moment, God just explodes in your heart a love and a passion and a joy that you've been missing for a while. And you say, praise God, let me keep going. But know this in your heart, Christian. Whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a year or 50 any righteous act you do can be corrupted by wrong motivations. So you must constantly press in towards faithfulness and ask God to work in your heart and praise God when he does. Let me give you one final, one final lesson. Practicing your righteousness rightly. Practicing righteousness must be guarded. Practicing righteousness must be guarded. In all three examples, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to guard their hearts so that their motives for practicing righteousness remain pure. Verses three and four. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, when you give, don't give in order to be seen do it for the good of your neighbor and the glory of God. Now, I remember hearing this passage taught when I was a young boy, or maybe I read it in my Bible or something, but, but I took Jesus' words quite literally here. And I, I, being in my pew in my little Baptist church in Circleville, Ohio, and I would literally put my left hand behind my back as I put my quarters or dollar bills into the offering plate. Like, Jesus, I don't want my left hand to know what my right hand's doing. That's not what Jesus means. If you want to do that, that's fine. But what Jesus' point is, you're supposed to give in such a way, not only you're not giving to be seen by others, you're giving in such a way that you're kind of self-forgetful about it yourself. You're not even going to remind yourself about it. You're not going to give and, and applaud yourself in your own heart. Look at how good I'm doing, giving so much, about giving more than him or her, doing more than that person. No, you're supposed to just give, and then you forget it. And you move on. You give for the applause of God, not the applause of men, and not the applause of your own soul. You give for His glory. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't do it in order to be seen. Now, Jesus here is not against praying publicly. Um, we've prayed publicly several times in this service already this morning. Public prayer is all throughout Scripture. Moses, Daniel, Ezra, the apostles, Jesus himself all prayed publicly. What matters is your heart's motivation. Are you praying in order to be noticed or in order to draw near to God? 
about a year ago, we had a town hall meeting here as a church, and we had a little bit of a debate about the public prayers here at PBC. And if you've been here for a while, perhaps you've noticed folks tend to come up to pray, and, and they may have notes with them or a tablet. They've actually kind of planned out what they're going to say. And the question was, isn't that violating what Jesus is talking about here? I, I think the answer is it depends on the heart of the person. You can stand up here and pray spontaneously without any preparation, and you can do it to be seen, can't you? Or you can stand up here having prepared, and you're truly doing it for the glory of God. What matters is your heart. You've got to guard your heart, Christian. Fasting, verses 17 and 18, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, when you fast, don't make yourself look miserable so people ask how you're doing and you tell them, I'm doing something holy. I'm fasting for God. Don't draw unnecessary attention to yourself. The point is not about you doing it to draw near to Him. There is perhaps no better example of the depravity of our own hearts than the fact that we must so vigilantly guard our hearts against righteousness theater. Even as Christians, even, maybe even especially as Christians, we are prone to do acts of righteousness in order to be seen. How about you, Christian? Where have you dropped your guard? Where do you need to guard your heart against this? Adam ruined everything. God created humanity in his own image to walk in perfect community with him. To live righteously with hearts that loved his praise perfectly and never sought the applause of men. We were created to love the real treasure. And yet, our first parents, Adam and Eve, believed the lie of a slithering snake. And ever since, our hearts have been corrupted by the wickedness of sin that craves anything and everything smaller than Jesus. But here's the good news, friend. God loved us so much, he sent Jesus Christ to this earth to live this perfect righteous life. Not only doing all the right acts, but doing them from the right motivations, for the right reasons, in the right way. He did all of that perfectly, and yet died on a cross to pay the penalty for your failures. Maybe even in this room today, your failures to worship him rightly. He died for that. If you know this, Jesus, you ought to leave here rejoicing that you have received that kind of love. And if you don't know him, we plead with you to turn from your sins and trust in him before you leave here today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much for living righteously and dying the death of a sinner. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you for sending your spirit Spirit, thank you so much for filling us so that we might 
labor towards a righteousness that pleases you more than it pleases other people. I pray that you would work that in our hearts this morning for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with me as we sing together.